This will be presented in a conversation style format between our two panelists, Professor Tim Naftali and Wagner MPA candidate Ria Almeida. We aim to provide a historical overview of elections in the United States, the evolution of suffrage, the Electoral College, and many other features of US government. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce you to both of um, our panelists here. First, we have Professor Timothy Neftali, who is a clinical associate professor of public service and a clinical associate professor of history, as well as the director of NYU's undergraduate public policy program. The first federal director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum, Neftali has served as an historical consultant to a number of federal investigative and historical projects, such as the 9-11 Commission and the Interagency Working Group on Nazi and Imperial Japanese War Crimes. The author or co-author of five books and editor or co-editor of eight books, Neftali specializes in presidential, international, and espionage history. He is currently a CNN presidential historian and appears regularly in historical documentaries. Next, we have our wonderful student facilitator, Ria Almeida. Ria is a second year MPA international student at NYU Wagner, hailing from Mumbai, India. In the past, she has worked in the fields of policy, advocacy, and development for SEWA, a women's labor union in India. Prior to that, she worked as a TV news journalist in New Delhi, and her areas of interest include workers' rights, gender equality, grassroots level advocacy, and coronavirus response policy. She serves as a senator for the Wagner Student Association and is also co-host of the Hallway Talks podcast series. Hey, thank you so much, Jennifer. And thank you, Professor Navtali, for doing this. I'm actually extremely excited to hear your views. And I have a list of interesting questions, so let's dive in. Cool. Uh, to start with, for uh, international students like me, uh, when we look at the US, it is posed as like a standard of democracy, a gold standard of democracy. It's one of the oldest democracies in the world. And I thought that it would be interesting to get some context about how it got started. So if you could walk us through the experiment of democracy, how it started and who originally had the right to vote in America. American story is so complicated. And I, I share with all of those watching and you, the, 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 the uh, at times almost the frustration at trying to, trying to equate the rhetoric of the experiment with the reality of the experiment. So um, let me, maybe, because I can always during the Q and A, I can do a deep dive and give you uh, uh, very specific historical dates, but let me give you a sense of the overview. Um, the United States, emerges as a limited democracy. Um, it is the first modern country to have an elected head of state. Um, when the uh, founders in 1787 were putting together uh, the, the, the country that we know as the United States, they were trying to correct a mistake. They had, um, after beating the British in the American Revolution, they had established a system of a, a very loose confederacy, confederation, and it was pulled and tied together by the Articles of Confederation. It did not have a chief executive. It didn't have a president, and it wasn't working. Um, and so they re realized they'd made a mistake. And, uh, and so the sort of the elite, the governing intellectual elite, public service elite, if you will, of the time realized we've got to fix this. We have to strengthen the central power. We have to define it, but we also have to keep the, ha the states happy. Mm -hmm. And so, so what you're going to see come emerge from the Constitutional Con uh, Convention of 1787 is a compromise, a compromise between the interests of the states and the interests of the elites. By the way, I didn't mention the people, did I? No. And that's where the limit to democracy element comes into play. The Americans are the first to elect their chief of uh, their head of state. In other words, not a king, not a queen. It's not going to be by birthright, or <laughs> uh, previously was thought to be by divine right. 
the idea is that they would select the chief executive. And it wasn't hard for them to determine who that first chief executive was going to be. Everybody wanted George Washington, all the members of the elite. There was no opposition to George Washington being president. And so in the end, the office of the president is shaped for George Washington. There's a lot of gray areas, and those are going to be shaped by future presidents. But initially, the job was written for George Washington. So who could vote in 1789, 1788, when the first election occurs, presidential election? Only white men with property. So very, very few Americans could vote. And who could vote for president? Well, even fewer Americans could vote for president because the president was selected by electors, electoral college, electors selected by states. And, and many of the states did not ask the people to vote on who the electors would be for president. The people, the white men with property could vote, but they'd vote for the lower houses, the assemblies um, for the state. Um, <clears throat> most states, uh, and in the beginning, all states had two houses <clears throat> of uh, two legis their legislature was what we call bicameral. It had two houses. And <clears throat> normally the lower house was elected by those people with a right to vote. And the upper house was selected by elites. It mirrored the British system of having a house of commons, which is elected by the people and a house of lords, <clears throat> which initially was selected by the king, but over time was selected by elites below the king. <clears throat> so, so the American system is not a direct democracy from the beginning. Right. What happens, and it's, it's a glorious story. When I say glory, I'm not saying that it's an exceptional story and the Americans figured out how to get it right. And no, 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 it's the, it is what makes history full of passion because what happens is there's a struggle. I'll, until the Civil War, it's, this is a peaceful struggle, a political struggle to expand the definition of we the people to include more and more elements of American society. And that struggle continues. It is an American struggle. It's not that there was a period of radicalism and then it stops. No, no, no. This is a constant story of change. So the first occurs in the 1820s when poor white men want to vote. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they have national figures who are their ally. And one of them <clears throat> is a former general from the War of 1812 known as Andrew Jackson. And Jackson identifies with poor whites. These are men without property, okay? <clears throat> and states who in the US, the, in, and, um, un, until later, the states determined who got to vote. When, that, when those compromises occurred in 1787, the states were the ones who would decide how people voted, in other words, the, the manner by which they voted, when they voted, and, and, the, and, and, the, and the conditions or qualifications for voting. So a number of the states begin to allow white men without property to vote. And this happens gradually um, over the, during the 1820s and early 1830s. And some people of color, men, only men, some people of color have the vote in the Northern states of the United States. But in some of those Northern states, the ability to, to vote without property is not extended to men, uh, uh, to men of color okay. who can vote only with property. So there are a series of rules which are, um, that have a, a racist tinge which limit the growth of suffrage in the Northern states. Of course, in the Southern states, you have enslaved people and their story, the, the story of their suffrage is, is quite different and occurred later. Mm -hmm. So you have this expansion. Now keep in mind, with those few exceptions, people of color couldn't vote. No women, whether they were white or of color could vote. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Civil War. And the Civil War leads to both the freeing the enslaved people of the South, 
And then there, the granting of suffrage, the right to vote to men in the South who were in, formerly enslaved, mm-hmm. not women, okay? And again, the story of women's suffrage is a 20th century story. It's not a 19th century story, which mm-hmm. is by the way, also true, sadly, of other countries. Um, um, so you have in, with the 15th amendment in 1869, the granting of voting rights um, to formal, formerly enslaved people. And, and in fact, the, the amendment is, is written so that you, so it says you cannot deny someone the right to vote on the basis of race. Unfortunately, and I think it, um, what is going to happen is that state legislatures are going to find ways to reduce the ability of, for, of people of color from to vote by finding ways other than very overt uses of race as a way of suppressing the vote. Mm-hmm. In, um, uh, in 1920, women get the right to vote and that's the 19th amendment of the American constitution. And then in 1964, there is an amendment to the constitution which prohibits the states from levying a tax uh, on people and using that to prevent them from voting. Those were called poll taxes. If you couldn't pay that tax, whether it hit disproportionately people of color, but it hit poor whites as well, you weren't allowed to vote. So the, the, the US constitution, the federal government with the concurrence of the states because three quarters of the states have to approve of constitutional amendment right. in addition to the con- Congress for it to, to, to be ratified. They prevent this one form of, of vote, voter suppression. Mm-hmm. The next year, they try to get rid of the other forms of voter suppression um, with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and that eliminates the literacy test. These were pernicious tests that were written basically for the person to deny the person the right to vote. So they would ask a, a voter, a prospective voter, questions that a constitutional lawyer would have a hard time answering. And then when they couldn't answer it, they were denied the right to vote. So the, in 1965, Congress corrects that. And then in 1971, the 26th Amendment lowers the voting age from 21 to 18. Mm-hmm. And so you get the suffrage that we have today. So anyone who says that the United States was the first modern democracy has to explain why it took so very long for people of color, for people without property, for women of all kinds, and then for people younger than 21 to be able to vote. And the story is a story of struggle and and enlightenment um, and evolution. Absolutely. And it's so interesting that in 2020, we're still fighting for that right to vote because there are still mechanisms that are trying to dismantle people's right to vote. There are still, for example, incarcerated citizens that don't have the same rights to vote. So we're at the electoral college Almost all citizens of the US now have the right to vote. How does that vote translate into who sits in the White House? Well, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ria. So in 2016, we saw the last election. And I remember one one of the statements that I kept hearing after the election as an international witness to this was that 80,000 people in three states were the ones that determined President Trump reaching the White House and Hillary Clinton lost the vote, but won the popular vote. And this, I think, distinction between the popular vote and who actually get into the White House is quite a confusing distinction for people who don't have this presidential system. So could you walk us through that electoral college? It goes back to that compromise I mentioned, Ria, earlier. Um, the the founding fathers um, weren't con- weren't sure whether they wanted an appointed president um, or whether they wanted uh, the people as they defined the people to elect the president. And also states were worried that the person who'd be selected might in some way be uh, negatively influenced against their state. 
Um, George Washington is a slaveholder and he's from Virginia. Southern states were worried that the culture of the Northeast um, would not understand and did not understand the basis of their society and economy. Um, as I mentioned, George Washington was, you know, he was everyone's choice. But from that moment on, who became president became increasingly controversial. Um, and for that reason, the founders decided to give the states a real role in ensuring that the president was the national choice. Mm -hmm. So the Electoral College <clears throat> was the group who would select the president. Each elector would be selected by, in that era, his state. Mm -hmm. His state got to got a certain number of electors. Um, think of it, if, if you know something about the stock market, your shareholders, if you will, and the number of shares that you got to vote for the corporate president, if you will, depended on your population. Mm -hmm. Everybody got two votes because you got a vote for every senator and every state got two votes, two senators, regardless of their size and their population. So every, you start with two. In addition, you get a number of electors that is correlated to the number of representatives you have in the House of Representatives. And the constitution mandated that every 10 years you have a census. Some of you have actually seen advertising for the census. It's crucially important mm -hmm. because it determines how many representatives in the House of Representatives each state has. And that ratio that changes the number of representatives in the House has been fixed since the early 20th century, but uh, since, sorry, since the 20th, the mid 20th century when Alaska and, and Hawaii joined, but the number has been fixed, but the share among the states changes depending on their comparative sizes. And those sizes change as the population, as people move and as birth rates and immigration rates change the number of people in the country and where they live. Mm -hmm. So it's those electors who choose the president. Now, over time, the states decide, the states let the public vote for the electors. The public would go to vote on the, on the second Tuesday in November, or the, sorry, the first Tuesday in November, and they would vote for a slate of electors. And then the state said, the person who gets the most number, the presidential candidate who gets the most number of votes in our state will get all the electors we, to which we are entitled under the system and they will go to the electoral college not physically the votes go though and vote for the president so the united states does not have a direct a direct election of the president the way other countries do that's why the popular vote while interesting in terms of understanding the mandates i guess of the president as actually bears no relationship whatsoever to the electoral college. Right. It's the electoral college under the US system from the beginning, which selects the president. And, and you may say, well, how archaic? Well, indeed it is, but it represents the fact that still that this is a country that is a federation. Mm -hmm. um, many of you who are listening, and I hope in the Q and A you will talk to me or us about this, come from federal states. You know <clears throat> that there is a tension built into the system between the central government and the provinces or the states, uh, however they call the subunits. In this country, one way of satisfying the states when the country was born was to give them this role in selecting the president. Over time, the public has taken over the state's role, but the states still make decisions. For example, Maine and Nebraska do not award all of their electoral votes to the nominee gets the most popular vote. Mm -hmm. They do it. They have some that some of their electors go to the person who wins the state. Some go to the person who gets the most number in their congressional district. 
So that's why you may, if you're interested in watching how Biden and Trump are doing, you see separate uh, references to Maine's first congressional, uh, uh, congressional district and second congressional district and Nebraska's first congressional district and second congressional district because those will be awarded to the person who gets the most presidential votes in those sub areas. So it's still up to the states how they determine the way in which the public chooses the lay electors that go to the electoral college. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you for your opinion on, on this system, but do you think it's an effectively representative system of democratic election? No, it's not an effective, it's not an, uh, it's not an effective representative uh, system of the American democracy. It's a re representative system of the American Federation. It is a way of giving Rhode Island and Wyoming, two states with small populations, um, a stake in the presidency that they might not otherwise have because they're so outvoted by California and New York and Texas and Florida. Now, it's all about the philosophy of the country. And the beauty of the American system is it evolves and the, and the constitution has evolved. The definition of the people has evolved and the American people may decide we want more of a say in our, and who becomes president, but they would have to get three quarters of the states to agree to reduce the power of states. And <laughs> well, it's very hard to ask people to give power away. Yeah. But it's happened. It's happened. Each time you expand the suffrage, you are giving power to more people and away from elites. So it has happened in American history. It's just hard to predict when it will happen again. Absolutely. And of all the things that happened this year, this is also a census year. So uh, important to see how that influences uh, the next representative. And you see, by the way, that the that the current government is very nervous about the census yep. and is very interested in finding a way to reduce California's uh, number of electoral votes. Um, and they're doing it by trying to prevent um, undocumented immigrants from participating in the census. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting historically and very sad is that people in this country who couldn't vote were historically counted. They weren't counted as a single individual. Um, they, were, they, were, they were counted as a percentage, uh, a share. And these, I'm speaking of enslaved people, slaveholders wanted enslaved people to be somehow counted in the census to increase the number of representatives that they would have in the House of Representatives. Um, that's so interesting. That's the, um, uh, the three-fifths. Right. Uh, one enslaved person was counted as three-fifths of, 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 of an American citizen. Now, that's not because these racists believe that a, that a person of color was worth three fifths of a white person, although they thought that people of color sadly were inferior. Mm -hmm. It was simply a compromise because the states that didn't have enslaved people didn't want to give too much power to the states that had enslaved people. It's about power here. Right. Um, so the, 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 from the beginning, the power of the census has been understood because it dictates the number of representatives in the house and the number of electoral votes to choose the president. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so I wanna delve a little bit into your personal history with studying presidential um, history in the US. Uh, I know that you've worked on building the Nixon Library's Watergate exhibit and I read a lot about it, it was so interesting. Uh, I know you also have written multiple books on presidential history. You've worked on US-Soviet relations. 
questions. You've looked at the Cold War very closely. You are also a consultant on the 9-11 Commission. And so I think you've seen, witnessed, studied many, many important historic moments in the US presidential history. And some of them that kind of, I guess, challenged democracy. Watergate was something that challenged American democracy. So you've studied all of these historic moments. How does the current president and the current scenario we're living through, how does it compare? Is it really as outlandish as we think it is? Well, um, I, I, I want to want to make clear that uh, one of the things I try hard to do in my classes is, uh, uh, is, is, is try not to be an advocate for any particular party. I'm not a particularly partisan person by nature, although I have political views. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm going to start my conversation, this, this response to a very good question by making clear uh, that um, that not every Republican president uh, has challenged the norms of our system, the American, sorry, when I say our, I'm, I'm also an American citizen now, the American system, the way that Donald Trump has. Um, uh, I am very worried. Uh, I am very worried because um, I get asked the question, um, as you mentioned, I, I do some commentary. Um, I get question, asked the question a lot, um, will the Trump presidency change the, the norms, um, the ethics of the presidency? And my answer has always been the same. Doesn't mean it's right, it's just been my answer. It depends whether he's reelected. Um, because I think this is true of politicians and I've studied other countries and I've lived in, other, in another country. I think it's true in many countries that politicians are often very cowardly. Mm -hmm. uh, they, um, they are motivated by power, the acquisition and retention of power. They are trying to figure out what enough of their constituents need or want to stay in power. Mm -hmm. I, they're very rarely, and, and that's why I like to study the ones that are different, very <laughs> rarely do they lead or try to influence or persuade. Um, um, when, I, when I'm working with our students, I, I, I'm not a cynic. I couldn't be a teacher if I were a cynic. I don't think a cynic should teach. I, so I retain, I don't think it's naivete. Some of my friends would say it, but I, I retain a certain idealism. Mm -hmm. But I do share with students that, that um, public policy, you make a difference in public policy, but that some elected people you will interact with are, are not going to be that interested unless you can make an appeal to their self-interest and their self-interest is political self-interest. What Donald Trump has done um, is he has brought to power people who think it's okay to confuse your own personal needs with the needs of the country. Mm -hmm. They think it's okay to have civil servants. I was a civil servant when I was at the Nixon Library. I, with my salary was paid by American taxpayers. I was creating a space where a socialist, a communist, a right-winger, a centrist, a liberal should feel comfortable. My job was, was not to promote one particular view of the United States, nor uh, my job was to create a safe space for, mm -hmm. for, for visitors to exhibits of public history and to scholars working with the stuff of history in our archive. Donald Trump doesn't believe in an independent civil service. Uh, he wants civil servants who are loyal to him. We know this because he says it all the time and he fires those who aren't. The United States took years to develop an independent civil service. It didn't happen until the 1880s. And to lose that would have severe consequences. For example, it would mean the people interacting with you when you pay your taxes, or if you're an American citizen. Um, anytime you interact, hello? Anytime you interact with the US government, there would be the possibility that the person interacting with you is politically motivated. 
and will not be working with you uh, as a citizen, but will be trying to figure out if you're worthy of assistance or of the opposite from US government, using the power of the federal government to penalize people who are not loyal. When that happens, that undermines the basis of a constitutional republic. Mm -hmm. Those ethics are right now uh, being assessed by the American people. I don't believe most, I, I'm not saying every American is going to the polls thinking about that, but the decision they make on the 3rd of November will influence whether this approach to governance and to public ethics becomes the American approach, which we'll obtain for, for a generation. You'll have all kinds of smaller mini Trumps who will see that you can win by being divisive, sectarian, nationalist, bigoted, self-interested, and corrupt. And that will change the nature of this country. So yes, it's outlandish, but it's outlandish with a consequence that could be very serious. And I would argue tragic for this country. You know, if the stakes weren't already high for this election, you've given us exactly how high they are. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about your personal um, experience as an international person looking into the US. Um, before I get there though, for the 40 something international students that are listening to this, how do we perceive this election in the international context? Because we interact with domestic students who are looking at domestic policy, looking at how it's going to, for example, impact the ACA and um, Roe v. Wade and you know, domestic um, important issues. How does it impact us as international students? Well, um, here I, I, I want to be uh, very transparent. My philosophy um, is I'm a liberal internationalist. So I believe that it is the interests of individual citizens of whatever country uh, and the international community for there to be international interaction, which means immigration, which means trade, which means travel, which means um, access to ideas. That's just, that's my philosophy. So my answer to you is going to reflect that philosophy. So inter for international students, uh, uh, the stakes are very high because right now I would imagine this is not as hospitable a place as it was four years ago. Yeah. It's harder to get into this country I'm not talking about leaving aside the pandemic. It's harder to get into this country. It's harder to get permission to work in this country. It's hard. All of the mechanisms that were created to allow the United States and the world to learn from each other. That's how I view it, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's learning from everybody. You have foreign students like me coming here to learn from Americans and contributing, not just taking, I hope, but contributing. And then either going home to your country and then having a great life, whatever life you wanna have, or staying in this country. But having the option, not, not an easy option, mind you, and we're not talking about immigration here, but not an easy option, but it's possible, but, but having that choice. And the door being, you know, the rules being clear, but there being a door that is not locked so that this is possible. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe that it is in the interest of every country in the world to have this kind of approach. It's not just an American advantage. But, but the government now is dominated by people who have a pinched sense of the world and who are motivated by what I would argue is historically a set of myths about the nature of power and success in the international system. Now, we don't have time to go through all these myths, but I will say that the 1930s, and I'm not talking about, I, I'm talking about the rise of nationalism, but, but I'm not talking about Hitler Germany. Um, but the 30s are a reminder that when countries are each other's throats and use tariffs as a way of protecting themselves, mm -hmm. the world loses, which means every country loses that this kind of approach, this protectionist approach, whether it's about ideas or goods, 
or human beings. This protectionist approach is the approach of, of weaker loser, losing societies that are afraid to compete. And every society has a reason for healthy competition, good reason for it. But that's just my, my philosophy. So that's on the ballot too this time. India, man. Make India make. So uh, you were an F1 student when you yeah. first came to the US. And I'm an F1 student. I'm sure a lot of people here are. And it's different watching US politics from abroad and then being in this country and then witnessing it firsthand. So in your experience, what did you not understand or not learn about US politics until you were in the country? Well, I, I'm from, I was born in Canada and I'm from the province of Quebec, from Montreal. Um, I do speak French, but my mother tongue is, is English. Montreal is um, roughly a hundred miles from the US border. Most of, uh, most, most Canadians live within a hundred miles of the US border. And that's significant because it means you watch American television. Right. Um, so, so, and I read a bit, I, I was interested in the United States and I would travel here. I have relatives, had and have relatives in the United States. Um, but I, I had what I would consider a presidential view of the United States. Uh, I assume the president was more powerful than the president actually is. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I learned when I got to this country was the role of Congress and, uh, and the differences between a parliamentary system and the American constitutional system. Parliamentary systems, as those of you from parliamentary systems know, the executive and the legislature are joined. The executive emerges from the legislature. Now you also have either a president on the top or the queen who is the has the final say, but usually that person has no power. Mm -hmm. So really it's the executive that emerges from the legislature and that, that, that runs the show. With the exception of those moments when you have minority governments or coalition governments, the executive pretty much does what it wants to do. Now there's, there's exceptions, but they pass budgets. They, they, they run the government. The United States has this system that where they don't have a, they don't, they can't pass a budget more often than not. And of course, it's totally understandable when you go back and look at the nature of the compromises that were made in 1787. Mm -hmm. The fear of any one center of power being too powerful. Um, so I had to, I did not understand that until I came to this country. I saw the, you know, from television and my reading as a kid, I just saw the, the Congress as an investigator of the president. Cause I, you know, I was a kid, but I, I did witness Watergate. So I, that was in my mind, but I didn't fully understand the nature of, of how you make sausage, legislative sausage. <laughs> the other one um, has something to do with television, may have something to do with me, but the other was my lack of understanding of the role of race in American society until I moved here. I just, I didn't grow up in the South. I didn't understand how race permeates, has permeated the evolution of American institutions and the struggle for freedom for people of color is essential to understanding the basic story of the United States. Nevertheless, histories and the mainstream media of the time I was growing up in the 70s, when you had only three major, four networks, but three major networks, while discussing race, didn't fully explain or outline the role of race. Also it was a very triumphalist story of the success. Look what we've done as a result of the second reconstruction of the 1960s, when in fact the work was unfinished. And it's the inability of the, of the media and the historians that I was reading would, would be popular historians. I, I wasn't a scholarly historian at the time. Um, they didn't talk about the unfinished business as much. And it's, it's what you learn when you come here is the unfinished story. Mm -hmm. And the idea that this, this country evolves. I believe it's a consequence of an unfortunate um, interpretation that a lot of Americans learn 
at home maybe, or certainly in high school, which is this country is exceptional, which I do not believe is a helpful idea for anybody. Imagine, you know, obviously, imagine uh, if your parents, one's parents called you exceptional when you were a kid. Would you have worked that hard? Would you have worked, think of how hard all of you have worked to get to where you are now. And if somebody had patted you on the head and said, now you, that's different from giving you confidence because everybody wants confidence from friends, loved ones, parents, you got it. But imagine if somebody had just told you from the beginning, you're exceptional and gave you the sense that you're, there's no unfinished work, no unfinished business, you know it all. You do everything perfectly. I just don't think you'd be as motivated to have achieved everything all of you have clearly achieved by being on this call. And I don't think it's good for countries either. And so there is a tension in the public square in this country because of this, this unwillingness on the part of some Americans to admit there's unfinished business and that, and that, that latent in the constitution are aspirations and those are, have not been met yet. And, and I didn't get any of that. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't understand that. And it was only coming to this country um, and living here, learning about life here, making friends here, that I fully got the, the ongoing struggle and understood it. I, I'm not saying I understood it, understand it as, as well as some, but I, I have a better understanding than I did when I was a kid growing up in Canada. Uh, considering none of us have been studying US history and presidential history for 30 years, I think you do have a better understanding than most. Well, well, I haven't been, well, but I haven't been studying really well. I mean, my, my own intellectual journey is, is a different story. I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, when I was in graduate school, I did, yes, one of my fields was American history, but another one was medieval Russian history and international history and British history. But my, my, my dissertation was about the evolution of the US intelligence community. My, my specialty was intelligence in the beginning, but it was intelligence history. And then it expanded when the Cold War ended and new documents emerged and I'd studied Russian, it's a long story, but I began to do Cold War international history, I, I didn't do presidential history until a little later because in, in my career, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm intellectually restless. I get bored easily <laughs> and I need new challenges and I wanna learn about everything, not quite everything. I think medicine is beyond what I really can understand, but, but, um, but also it's a matter of my um, opportunities. I, I chose because uh, some remarkable archival opportunities emerged in Russia. I made a decision to leave um, the academic world, uh, the, the tenure track world as a junior professor. And from that moment on, I, I have never had an, a regular uh, academic appointment. Um, I mean, regular in the terms of your professors who, who become tenured and that sort of thing. There's, a, there's, a, there's sort of a, 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 a track I've been off that track. So my, my work has had to do with, you know, the, the institutes that I'm at or running or, so I have been influenced by where I was and what jobs were available, not in terms of what interests me intellectually, but what I have time to do. So I, I went to the University of Virginia and, and I wanted to continue work on Kremlin politics, but the deal I struck with the University of Virginia was that I had to help with a presidential tapes project. Well, I was interested in presidential tapes, but you know, I'd never spent that much time. So suddenly I'm overseeing a team and we become quite proficient at understanding presidential tapes. Well, that makes you a presidential historian. And before I knew it, I, with my colleagues, really had an incredible understanding of the nature of presidential decision-making and power. I didn't have that in grad school. And I'm not sure that that was eventually what I was going to do, but you know, five years later, I I had this job opportunity and I got that opportunity and I and I did it. So my intellectual journey has been linked in part to the uh, job opportunities and 
that I've been fortunate to have over, over my career. Right place at the right time. Professor Naftali, I can go on asking you question after question, but we have 10 minutes left and I will hand it to sure. the Thank audience you. to ask some more questions. Thank you so much. This was so insightful. Yeah, you're welcome, Ria. My pleasure. Thank you, both Professor Naftali and Ria. Um, yeah, it was a very engaging conversation and we do have some questions, especially some follow-up questions, it looks like, about the Electoral College, voting in general. Um, so I think the first question I'll pose to you, Professor Naftali, is, this is from an audience member. Some people think that democracy does not work because the average voter only votes for what benefits them, but does not, but does not vote for what benefits society as a whole. What do you think of this notion? Well, remember what I was saying about being partisan. Um, so I want to unpack that notion. Um, the person asking that fair question has a political philosophy behind the question. I'm not saying it's a bad one or a good one. I'm just saying that they have a certain philosophy. There are people who are conservative who would argue that voting in your own self-interest is, is, uh, is good. And that if people vote in their self-interest, you will collectively have a society that is in the interests of the individual and protects individual uh, rights and liberties and choice. So that, so, so I just want the person asking the question to, to understand that he or she has behind that question their own philosophy, which to which they of course have a right. I believe that, um, I, I, I believe democracy is the right to vote. And one of the things that all of us who care about where we live have to understand and learn is that not everybody makes the same calculation when they vote that you do. Now, if you become and if you become a policymaker, this means you have to understand the people that you represent and are trying to, uh, whose lives you want to improve. I'm, I'm arguing from the Wagner perspective, you are going to be a policymaker because you want to improve people's lives. <laughs> Not the other kind of, uh, of approach that I was saying was on the ballot now. So, so that's, but, 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 but one of the, and I tell you, I mean, this actually is where my worlds co not collide, but they really, if you remember Venn diagrams is where they overlap. Cause I, I, I have a, a sort of a deep understanding of intelligence organizations and, and of deception and military and otherwise, and psychological warfare. And I know how people have thought about that and how it's evolved. And, and so I, and I, and I'm also thinking about the nature of the public square today in our informational world and what's motivating people to vote and the role that misinformation is playing. And, and that is one of the most interesting subjects. I'm, I'm afraid I don't have any great wisdom on this, except that the human being is infinitely interesting and perplexing. But if you think of each person as an individual, and how they get to that vote that, well, now they're not, probably not going to go to a polling booth if they're your age, but the, how, they, the, how they decide to, to vote. It, 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 is, it is an important question to ask. And sociologists and political scientists are doing their best to figure it out. But I don't think there's any particular answer. Um, and so that's why, though I'm looking at the polls, I can't say for certain who's going to be president who will be inaugurated on January 20th. Thank you. Um, so our next question, um, let me just read this out to you, it's a bit long. In the past, the US has been well known as the guardian of liberal democracy, which tends to lecture, quote unquote, other countries um, or composing the worldview by arguing it as a human rights or kind of like this democratic angle. However, this approach has not been seen under the Trump administration since it's more focused on trade, diplomacy, and it, with its rivalry with China. Their question is, do you think the election result will influence US approach on this matter? Let's say if Biden wins the election, will the US play, like return back to its role as this guardian of liberal democracy? 
um, will it resume that position again? Um, one of the things that this is a great question too. Uh, one of the, the one of the um, uh, one of the consequences of the Trump presidency is it's it's shone a light on this country's commitment to engaging with the world. We'll talk about lecturing the world maybe later, but and it turns out that the country, like on so many issues, as in so many issues, is very split about this. There wasn't an, an elite consensus that it was in the interests of the United States to support, whenever possible, uh, similar countries overseas. But that was an elite consensus. Um, the elite, and I, when I say elite, I mean Republicans and Democrats alike. I don't mean just New Yorkers or Californians. But I'm not sure the extent to which, uh, as the years went by in the 20th century, that Americans generally believed that or were committed to it. Because um, part, part of that whole idea involves foreign aid and foreign engagement, not military engagement, but Peace Corps, um, providing food, uh, pro um, uh, providing assistance, not CIA covert bribing, but assistance to countries. And that costs money. And Americans actually, uh, I'm not sure America, every year was a fight for the US government to get a foreign aid bill passed. Um, not as hard on the, on, the, on the military side because the American military budget is a source of funding for lots of economic projects in the United States. I think it's more um, useful to, use, to view the defense budget as, uh, as, a, as, a, as an industrial program for keeping industries and employment in various states of the United States. So there's a lot of support for the defense budget, not because Americans actually want to go and fight abroad. The Trump period has shown that Americans are very happy to bring people back what they want, though, is money to go into the into those com companies that employ them, or the companies that they for which that they own shares in. So, will Joe Biden, if he's reelected, re-engage the United States with the world? That's really the question. If Trump is reelected, well, we know what Trump thinks of the world. It's do you like me? If you like me, I'll deal with you. If you don't like me, I won't deal with you. It's very simple. In Biden's case. I'm going to be watching to see the extent to which the Trump period will make it more difficult to re-engage with the world. Re-engaging with the world can be done easily by being an exemplar. In other words, we're not going to tell you what to do. Just watch what's happening here, and we hope that you will take some interest in us as an example. I don't think that's what the questioner meant about lecturing. The other kind of engagement means sending experts abroad, helping people with elections, and the so forth. I'm not sure the extent to which the Biden campaign will, the Biden presidency would continue that, partly because many countries don't want to listen to the United States anymore, given the Trump experience. One last point. I believe that there are parts of the world where local elites backed up often by populations, but not necessarily, that they request the United States to come in. That the US, the, the US role is not as much forced on them as it is requested. For example, in the South China Sea, in parts of Europe, in parts of Africa, the United States is asked to come in, whether it's because of the money Americans have or because the United States is considered, believe it or not, as an honest broker. I don't know if that'll happen in the Middle East again, but there are parts of the world where the United States remains an honest broker. And so US engagement in those parts of the world, I suspect will resume because Joe Biden likes that. Joe Biden is part of that old uh, bipartisan elite that believed in liberal internationalism. Great. Um... I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this. It's so, so much and I feel like I could keep we could keep posing questions to you for hours. 
Um, we do have a couple of questions about the Electoral College, and I, I think we often hear that um, key number of 270. Right. Um, a lot of students just want to get a better understanding on how the Electoral College works, but also in your opinion, um, do you believe that this is the best system? Uh, what would the ideal election process look like if it is not the Electoral College? For me? College? Oh, well, first of all, um, the Electoral College works this way. Um, uh, with the exception of, of Maine and Nebraska, um, uh, the state will determine which presidential nominee got the most votes. And then will uh, assign all of their electors to that candidate. Um, it's done, I mean, the, the, the sort of the details of the system are quaint because the, what, when, when, if you look, I mean, you wouldn't know this because you don't have a ballot, but those, uh, if you look at the ballot, it's actually you're voting for electors for a president. You're not really voting for the president. So there's a slate, each, each presidential nominee, which is really each, each party chooses a group of people that they're electors and they're the people who are elected. Now, those people can vote for somebody else, even if they are a slate that is delegated, there's a slate that is designated for Joe Biden. There's the possibility that, that, that one of them could say, I don't wanna vote for Joe Biden. I'm gonna vote for Mickey Mouse. It's, it's happened. In fact, in, in the very contentious, contentious period of what became the second reconstruction, Southerners, Southern states ran slates of electors who would vote for neither candidate so that they could throw the whole system into a mess. And then they, the, the, the Congress could choose a president who was a segregationist. But that's, we're talking about 1948, uh, we're talking about 1960. Um, uh, but, but actually in a recent Supreme Court case, they've applied rules that it's harder now for a member of a presidential electoral um, uh, list to vote against the, the nominee that they were, they're sort of designated to vote for. So you vote for this list of, of, and you never see the list, you just see the name of the presidential nominee. Those electors then in December, I think it's December 14th this year, will vote for a presidential candidate. The votes are then counted in Washington. And if a presidential candidate gets set 270 or more, they are elected president. So the election of the president actually doesn't happen until the meeting, the virtual meeting of the electoral college and the vote in the electoral college. So just to keep, make it clear, technically speaking, no one is elected president in November. It's just that we know how the electors will vote uh, in December. And that's why we can say that in December, the president is elected. And that's why, for example, John F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy refused to be called president-elect, even though Richard Nixon, his opponent, had conceded. He refused to be president-elect until the Electoral College had met and voted for him a month later. Uh, it's very quaint. Um, it's, a, you know, it's an 18th century system. Um, so 270 is the magic number. And if they do, if neither candidate gets 270, uh, in this case, it'd be because they got 269 each, which is possible because of Maine and Nebraska having split up <laughs> the number of delegates uh, of, of electors, then the House of Representatives will choose the president. And that vote is by state. So in other words, e each state has a certain number of representatives those representatives would be polled. And then if three voted for Biden and eight voted for Trump, the state would vote for Trump. And so the president would be elected by a majority of the states. And uh, of the new Congress, not the current Congress. So if they're 269 each, it'll be the Congress elected this time who will decide. Now, right now, if that were to happen, Donald Trump would be elected president 
because more states are dominated by Republicans in the House, even though Nancy Pelosi is the speaker, California and New York and Massachusetts give most of their electoral votes to the Democrats, Donald Trump would be elected in that, in the, under that scenario. But that's only if it's 269, 269. Um, it's a, that would be a very, very rare occurrence. There have been presidents chosen by the House, but it hasn't happened uh, for the last time. It hasn't happened since 1876. Well, I think we're coming up on time here. Um, I will save these questions though, and I might just pass them over to you to see what sure. you think about them. Um, and maybe we can share with our attendees later. Um, but we wanna thank you so much. This was really great. Um, I think both you know, domestic students, US citizens like myself and our international students learned a lot. Um, and it's a very timely event. So we want to send you both our warmest gratitude. It was a really great event and we really appreciate your time and all of the um, attendee questions. We do have a feedback form that we would like our audience to participate in um, just to kind of gauge interest in future conversations around US politics. Um, so definitely feel free to scan the QR code or access the bit link on the bottom. Um, but that pretty much concludes our U.S. election series and our U.S. politics series. So again, thank you for your time and your participation in this event. My pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you, Ria. Great question. Thank, thank you, Professor. Yeah, thank you, Ria. You did a great job. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. It was so great to participate in this.